0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Sebastian Kaplan, and I'm based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Glenn Hines from Derry, Northern Ireland. Hello, Glenn. Hello, Sam. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone, indeed. So uh, before we get started, why don't we want you to orient the audience to social media platforms and how to contact us? No problem. So on Twitter... The podcast handle
1: is at change talking and if you want to follow myself or Seb, uh Seb's personal one is S G K F R O M N C and Mines is at G L E N M H I N D S. Our Instagram is at talking to change podcast. Facebook is talking to change and our email address for suggestions or feedback on the podcast or for information
0: on our trainings, it's podcast at glenheines.com. Great. Thank you. Uh, So today we had a really good conversation with our friend and colleague, Kate Watson, and uh, you'll learn a lot more about Kate and her work she does in a moment. But uh, as we've been doing lately, we're doing this recording after we've had the conversation and and just give some some highlights at the front end or some teasers, perhaps. So Glenn, what what were some things that really struck you from that conversation we just had with her? I think we both agreed
1: immediately after we came off, just how powerful the area of work that Kate is supporting people in her teaching of motivation interviewing and practice of motivation interviewing in the advocacy role of survivors of uh, violence. And um, throughout it, just her sensitivity to the needs of that population and how she has made adaptations to what perhaps could be called traditional MI terms or concepts to make them much more accessible to that advocacy practice. You know, she talked about the change of using change talk to uh, self-advocacy, the way she did that was lovely. And the explanation for that is really, really good for people to hear as well. And there's a couple of other examples that, you know, that I think was really helpful. And so it was just, I think it was really humbling throughout just to hear the work of that advocacy with survivors and Kate's relationship with those individuals supporting them to be as helpful as they possibly can be with individuals and groups.
0: Yeah, really. It, it was, I feel like a lot of times we've had, you know, obviously great guests along the way, by the way, this is our 50th episode. So a bit of a, of a, you know, benchmark for us, but yeah, we've had a lot of great guests and really interesting topics. And, and a lot of those, a lot of times the, the MI that somebody does in one context seems really, you know, pretty similar. Maybe some different phrases or areas of focus, and and uh, but it's it's oftentimes feels quite similar. And this is one of those occasions where it felt like there at least needed to be great care paid in a particular way that was somewhat unique, I think, to to the work that Kate and the advocates do. And um, like one of the examples that Kate gave, which was really quite interesting, was about the, even just the concept of change itself and how, you know, in healthcare settings, changes can be somewhat of an obvious place to converse with someone, you know, there's great care and, and, and how survivor advocates talk about change. And Mm -hmm. so that would be an interesting thing. And, and also, you know, the, the kinds of reflections that, that they use, that it might be, uh, you know, a bit of a departure from what we would, how we would normally teach reflection. So yes. a lot of really interesting. Uh, it's a interesting, really rich,
1: really rich episode, definitely.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we we, uh, we think you all will really, really like it. Um, thanks for following us and subscribing and uh, hope you enjoy the episode. All right. Welcome, Kate, to the podcast. And uh, we'd love to hear a little bit about your, your background and your journey into MI and some of the work that you do
2: sure thanks for having me so my name is kate watson i am the founder of the advocacy academy a little bit of a tongue twister that i did not intend to be a tongue twister i provide probably 100 workshops per year for victim and survivor advocates and i i teach people how to use motivational interviewing skills to support victims of violence Uh, mostly domestic violence and sexual assault, sometimes child abuse. Occasionally, the word violence can be expanded to include families of homicide victims, um, hate crimes, discrimination. So I use kind of a broad definition of violence. But I first learned motivational interviewing when I was in graduate school for counseling psychology, but I didn't learn it in my counseling program. Um, I had a job outside of my program and learning motivational interviewing was a requirement of my job, which I'm so grateful for because I felt like graduate school, for me anyway, was this long period of learning what not to do as a counselor. And I was in school for years, spending a lot of money on this education, and I felt like we were learning don't be judgmental, don't be shaming, don't use labels, don't say this, don't do that. And I felt like we weren't learning enough skills to replace all the behaviors they were taking away from me. And uh, among my classmates, I felt like a really lucky winner of this, at the time, what was considered very specialty training that I was receiving at work. Um, And that was probably... 13, 14 years ago, and I was excited because motivational interviewing finally gave me a set of tools to use in place of a lot of other behaviors that my program was helping me unlearn. So it just worked really well side by side, kind of going to school and learning the things that I've been doing that are probably a little problematic, and then going to work and learning some really practical tools to put in in its place. After that, you know, I, I went to go get a, a job outside of graduate school, and I was looking for some experience in research because I knew I was going to go on for a doctoral program. And I happened to find this amazing research opportunity where they were using a motivational interviewing intervention with IPV or intimate partner violence, um, and and the folks who we were working with a part of this research study were patients in the emergency room. So that's where I started to learn how to apply these skills of motivational interviewing to survivors of violence. And now I take that work and I I, I teach it really all around the world. And and I've been able to go around the world because I, I do a lot of work with our United States military who are sort of stationed all around the world. And so I've been teaching the victim advocates associated with the Army, the Navy, the Marines, National Guard, about how to support survivors of violence.
1: Wow. Fantastic. Really, really interesting Concept of, of supporting the advocates of people who've experienced violence and the survivors of violence. And it sounds like what was interesting, what you were saying there as well, Kate, was how useful it was to have someone invite you to think about what you can do rather than telling you what you can't do. Looking at the positive contributions or the positive aspects of, of practice rather than just telling you not to do the negative ones. And I guess a lot of people listening to will recognize that even in, even in their own lives, how often we are told, what's wrong with us and told us to stop doing it without ever exploring how do we fill that gap. And I think that's that's wonderful the way you describe it, how motivation and fill that space for you as a counsellor, but it also then has been something you've integrated into your practice and exploring how to how to support people make changes in their lives. And I guess one of the things I'm curious about then is, you know, when you talk about supporting the advocates of survivors of violence, what does that mean? you know what what's the role of us of an advocate and where does I fit in?
2: Yeah, so depending on where a person is serving as an advocate, the role might look a little different. Um so I'll start there just sort of describing what an advocate does, and then I'll go back and talk a little bit about you know how how I see myself as supporting advocates. but um you know uh, an an advocate is someone who is decidedly for the client. Um, They're they're not neutral. They never pretend to be neutral. They are in the corner supporting a person who, in in the case of my work, someone who has been hurt or victimized by violence. And so sometimes they are advocating for people to have all of their rights met when they go to court or work with the police. Um, sometimes they are helping survivors of violence get connected to counseling or therapy to process their trauma. Um, sometimes they're advocating for them in the hospital when they're getting a medical exam because of some violence that has occurred to them. And so it's, you know, an advocate is someone who sits side by side with you when you're in your worst moment of your life and says, I'm going to, I'm going to help amplify your voice as best I can. And I often say, Advocates like to talk about empowerment, and I often say that what's implied by being an advocate is that you have some power that maybe someone else doesn't have or feels they don't have, and we lend it to other people. Advocates lend their voice, lend their power to someone who may feel at least temporarily like they can't use their voice or no one's listening. The irony there, and I never know if I'm using the word irony correctly, but the interesting thing there is often advocates feel that way too. Like no one's listening. And so when I think about my work, supporting advocates, you know, I think of myself as like helping the helpers. I often stand up in a room to do a workshop for advocates. And I start with that story I told you about graduate school. And I watch everyone nod because I think they too go through a lot of workshops about what not to do. And I make a commitment. And I say at the beginning of a workshop, if at any point we are going through a couple of, you know, things not to do, you know, moments that aren't so helpful, I'm committing to you that I'm going to replace that with something that might be more helpful. I won't leave you hanging. I won't leave you feeling empty, like you left here with fewer tools than you started. And so I find that there's a little bit of, of, of connection that happens there.
0: So thinking about the world of an advocate, as you described it, and thinking of it in Somewhat, I guess, in contrast to like a therapist, and you know, there's some kind of obvious things that you've described there. One, you know, therapists typically work in an office and it's kind of a rigid schedule and structure to their meetings. Whereas you're you're talking about someone who might be anywhere that the the client needs the advocate to be. So sort of environmentally, there's a lot more flexibility there. But I, I imagine too, the, um, that sort of lack of neutrality, which some therapists, of course, could be non neutral about things, but there may be, I guess, on the part of a the therapist, perhaps a, an effort to, to try to help the clients or practice finding their own voice, I suppose, or mm. sort of advocating for themselves. And, and I, I wonder, I'm just wondering about the, what kind of a balance those advocates strike as far as, empowerment using the advocate's voice versus trying to elicit the voice from the client and and how they might strike that.
2: Yeah, well, in my experience, you just described the struggle that a lot of advocates have. Um, I want to help empower a client, but I also am looking at someone who's having the worst day of their whole lives. And here I am feeling empowered myself. I could use my own voice to help others. And this is part of what makes motivational interviewing such a great approach, because I've been arguing for a long time that that in at least in the victim advocacy field, the, the, the phrase that we use in MI change talk maybe isn't quite the right phrase. That maybe when we help people voice what a nurse or a doctor or a social worker or a psychologist might call change talk in when I teach advocates. I ask them to consider that really just the client's self-advocacy. And I teach, I talk about that a lot. I say, you can call it change talk if you want. If you want to go buy the book, that's okay. This is really just the moments where we help people become their own advocates. So when you are evoking change talk from clients, to me, you're helping them find their own advocate voice and advocate for what is best for them. And I watch a lot of advocates say, yes, okay. Okay. Finally, I can see how my advocacy can kind of evolve into a client's self-advocacy with this approach. And so in in a lot of my trainings, we eventually do away with the phrase change talk. And and by the end of it, we're just talking about self-advocacy for clients.
1: As you're describing that, what strikes me is that just how... How much how much emotion that the, the advocates haven't advocates working with in relation to the survivor of the of the violence, the anger, the frustration, the loss and their own experience of having been disempowered in a relationship, whether it be long term or short term. And the I guess I imagine sometimes the temptation is that as you describe it, that the advocate feels empowered and goes, Look, I'll speak for you and I love that idea of you if you describe it amplifying their voice which mm-hmm. suggests that the sound that, that we are hearing through advocate has its origins in the survivor yeah. themselves, rather so, than the survivor saying, look, this is what they need. And it sounds mm-hmm. like that's where the Motivation Interviewing offers that transition between how do we hear what this person is saying, knowing that because of the consequences of their experience, they may have lost confidence in their own voice or they may be afraid to speak for themselves because of the consequences in other relationships. It's about Mm -hmm. how you reach in and find this, whatever sound, whatever, however loud that sound is, to be able to Mm -hmm. find that sound and just gently amplify it, and with always the intention of going at some point, the sound that you're going to hear is going to be your own voice rather than me repeating it for you. And and I'm just wondering, when you're doing that training then, Kate, you know, what is it you're doing? you've, You've already begun to explore this. What is it you're doing with the advocates to help them? make that transition so that they continue to feel that they're being supportive, but mm-hmm. they, they feel that they're taking a step back or they found a new way of helping this client advocate mm-hmm. for themselves.
2: Yeah. I, I like the way that you set that up. I, I, I think you've described it well, Glenn, and we spend a lot of time really exploring the writing reflex. Um, I find that as the years go on in my training, I spend a more and more and more portion of the training on the writing reflex. It used to be like I would define it in the morning and then we move on to skills. Now I feel like I could spend the whole day talking about the writing reflex um, because I describe to advocates my vision of advocacy. As a as a role that is very powerful, and that we have to be careful to use our power for good, not for harm, not to quiet other people's voices. And so we we speak a lot about how sometimes the writing reflex comes up when in our own minds. I I make I, I know the listeners can't see that I'm making this hand gesture, but it's sort of my I'm trying to describe like a siren going off or an alarm going off in our own minds. Sometimes we hear from a client who is struggling, who is, like I've said, having the worst experience of their life. They are devastated. They are hurt. They're traumatized. And in our minds as advocates or even counselors, the siren is going off saying, do something danger. This is really bad. You've got to step in. You have to help. Um, And sometimes we have a go at ourselves. You're not doing it right. You have to do more. And so when I'm teaching motivational interviewing, I spend a lot of time helping people notice their internal threat systems getting activated because I do happen to believe this interesting thing is happening between two people where the client is, has been traumatized by some violence and the, the advocate or the helping professional is having this sort of threat response of, there's danger ahead. I must step in. I must act. So helping people notice those signals so that we can start to practice some coping and soothing mechanisms before the writing reflex kicks in. And then I'm smiling because you said you described this Glenn as like this gentle amplification. You know, I often say to folks, rather than trying to solve everyone's problems, why not put a little microphone up to their hearts? Right. Just. Whatever's in there just needs a microphone for others to hear it. And if we can be that microphone, then maybe that is what an advocate does. Maybe an advocate is an amplifier. An advocate is a microphone. An advocate just takes what sound is being put in and it maybe expresses it in a way that others can hear. Um, and sometimes I think about the role that way.
0: I imagine the the situation or the context varies tremendously from that first moment in the ER where someone has come in after a a horrible event and the advocate is meeting them for the first time. And perhaps there's some decisions that need to be made, maybe some really critical ones versus, you know, several months down the line in a courtroom after the event has kind of at the, the initial, um, urgency of the event has passed and maybe mm-hmm. the needs are somewhere else. So I, I guess in terms of that amplification and, and with the microphone at the heart, what what are some of the things that, that the advocates need to, I guess, have their sights set on or their ears attuned to in in the early stages versus those middle stages versus perhaps the late stages? I don't know if you think of yeah. it in that way. And then I guess within that too, like what are the the, the motivational challenges or the ambivalence, I guess, that mm-hmm. a client a survivor of violence is grappling with at, at those different time points that the advocate can sort of help them through using MI.
2: Yeah. We often talk about the difference between decisions that often come before behaviors that often come before outcomes. Um, so when you first meet someone, they may be faced with a decision whether or not they would like to report abuse or violence that has happened. And that decision is one that only the survivor can make. Nobody can make that decision for them. And there may be a lot of ambivalence about that decision. But when we think about, you know, again, going back to like change talk versus sustain talk, this is probably where an advocate stays a bit more neutral on what the decision is probably a lot more neutral on what the decision is, but decidedly for the client, right? So for whatever you want to do, whatever that may be. And so we talk about counseling with neutrality at that decision-making point of really just helping people advocate for making a decision, whatever that may be. Um, And so we begin with questions like, how will you feel once you've made this decision about whether to report or not? And whatever the answer is there, it's, it's, it's typically something like, well, that will be great. I will be so happy. I will be so relieved once the decision is made, Hmm. that's sort of advocating for making a decision rather than a particular one. There comes a time and often not as quickly as we would like, (laughs) but there comes a time when a, when a survivor or a victim of violence will say, you know, what I think I really want to do is seek justice. I want to report this. I want action to happen. I want there to be a consequence. I'm just so afraid of retaliation. And so what I hear, and this is really your question, I think, is like, what are we listening for? What I hear is we've gone from a decision, that seems like it actually has been made now, to now ambivalence about a behavior I've made the decision that I want to report this, but now I have some fears about moving forward with this decision because this person might retaliate. Their friends might come after me. I'm going to have to go through a whole court process that I don't want to go through. People are going to ask me a lot of questions I don't want to answer. Maybe I should just let it go. And so for me, it's moved from a decision to now a behavior and usually there is some hopeful outcome that ends up being the first thing the person says, right? You meet somebody who's having this worst day of their life and they'll say something like, I just want to feel better. Well, that's not a decision or a behavior. That's a hopeful outcome. Um, or people will say, I just want to be safe in my life. That's not a decision or a behavior, but that is a hopeful outcome. Um, I just want to be happy. It's not really a decision or a behavior, but it is a hopeful outcome. And so I talk to advocates about sort of finding that timeline of decisions become behaviors, become hopeful outcomes. Did I answer your question, Sebastian?
0: Yeah, no, you did. Okay.
1: Yeah, and wonderful what you're saying, because as you're saying it, what strikes me is that the process that you're describing, the journey that an individual takes whether it be stopping smoking, losing some weight, or stopping, you know, changing their relationship with a, a violent partner, this process is the same. Yeah. But the, but the emotion that's been presented, the challenges, that the realities, the practical realities that they're having to overcome and respond to are quite different. And again, I, that what, what raises, what that raises for me then is the potential challenge for the practitioner to be able to hold. And hold those emotions while mm-hmm. the client works through them. But again, how often I imagine it must be tempting to, for the writing reflex to come in and just say, "Look, it'll be all right. We'll put we'll put bar orders on the individual. We'll we'll get you somewhere safe." Rather than going, recognizing, "Okay, so it sounds like you really want this to work for you." At the same time, you're really frightened about this. And then, from an MI perspective, the focus shifts away from the decision to make. They have to, they haven't made a decision to you know. What's the consequences of that decision and work through the that ambivalent yeah. aspect of that And again, what I'm curious about is you know we were talking off air before we started talking is that how do we how do you help people hold those very powerful emotions as as they support the client you know with that as you were describing earlier it, it was almost like that compassionate amplification the tenderness to accept of a positive regard of expressing the client's voice rather than voicing the client's. Rather than being, being angry for the client, they're ang- voicing that client's anger. How do you help them hold that?
2: I don't know that I would give myself credit that I do help them hold that. Mm. <laughs> but I I I share my own experiences with what it's been like for me when I'm activated and it's tough for me to hear these difficult emotions. And I, I often speak in my workshops about how I I can't know for everyone in the training how this will feel for them. Um, I can't know, you know, in, in your work, how you will notice that you are feeling a bit overwhelmed by all these difficult emotions, because I think our signals are all very different. I can't know how you will cope with those difficult emotions because I think our coping skills are all different. But I tell people, knowing your signals, knowing your internal signs of distress that you are starting to feel all of these difficult emotions will help you because it will buy you some time before it's flying out of your mouth. So let me explain that a little bit. I think if we don't pay attention to ourselves as advocates or interviewers or practitioners in any field, if we don't pay attention to ourselves, we will, we will miss it. We will not realize How worked up and activated and upset that we may feel on behalf of someone else who's going through a difficult time. And so, learning to pay attention to things like your heart racing, or it's really warm all of a sudden, or your back is tense. For me, it's my stomach does circles, like it starts flipping around. Um, Some people tap their foot a lot. Some people tell me their throat constricts. But if you learn to notice, what's happening for you. You've given yourself the gift of a little bit of time to, I don't know if the microphone picked up me taking a deep breath. (laughs) You've given yourself some time to put your feet flat on the floor to take that deep breath. For me, I take a sip of water, something else that helps me. I make sure this helps me a lot. I make sure my back is really leaning against my chair Like for my back to feel supported does something for me. It like reminds me we're all okay or something. And then another less, uh, less physical thing, but maybe more mental. I remind myself of the client's strengths. This goes on a cycle in my head. And I say to myself, this person who you're working with, Kate, this person has made it this far. This person who you're working with has survived every day up until this day, and they're going to keep surviving. This person has strengths, this person has skills, and I I feel all that activation melt away. But I don't believe it's something I can teach. I believe people have to discover well, how do I know when I'm all worked up and activated and my writing reflex is waking up from its slumber? Is it am I a foot tapper or am I a shoulder, you know, squeezer or whatever? I think people have to figure that out. And then they have the additional work of figuring out how to calm and soothe that tension that they're starting to notice. Um, and I wish it was something I could put on a PowerPoint slide. You know, I wish it was a worksheet I could hand out, but I I really believe it's something people have to go out into the world and discover. Um, and at this point in my life, I know that when I'm starting to feel all those difficult emotions and I'm trying to manage it all and my writing reflexes, waking up and saying, Oh, are there problems for me to solve here today? I notice it in my stomach first. I get this twisting, flipping feeling, and that's my early signal that I've got to do something or it's going to come out of my mouth. And I will be disempowering in that Mm -hmm. moment because I will start to take over and I will start to solve all their problems. And I will be quieting this person's voice rather than amplifying it.
0: Wow. Thank you for brief. I I feel like you you are teaching something there. There's, there's, uh, maybe not directly how any individual person can do it, but just the idea that one's own signals that are, that can be quite personal, our own sort of emotional fingerprint, I guess, can cue us into a warning of, you know, careful here. You might, you might be, uh, Going down a road where you you might really take someone's autonomy away and, and mm-hmm. start start to overpower them. And you know, we've talked in in a lot of different contexts, whether it's suicidality or vaccine hesitancy or opioid addiction. But the there's a certain level of urgency that I imagine comes up in a lot of these advocacy conversations. You know, I imagine there's survivors of intimate partner violence that end up returning home. And oh. returning to their you know their abusive partner and and I, I could just imagine how hard that must be for the advocate if they're if they have really strong concerns about someone's safety. And so all of these bodily cues to kind of help them regulate to then be able to engage in a conversation in a really helpful way can be quite quite helpful. You're hearing about the idea of strengths right so you're, you're saying you're, you one of the things that you do, you know you you Take a breath, drink a water, support your back. And then the sort of mental part of that seems to be this person has strengths. They've made it here thus far. And I was meaning to ask you about the role of affirmation in the work mm-hmm. that you do and how how helpful that is, perhaps how careful an advocate mm-hmm. needs to be with affirming someone who's in a really vulnerable, dangerous mm-hmm painful situation? And if if there's anything maybe different about use of affirmation in the context of the work that you do?
2: Great question. I'm going to think about that for a second. I don't know how different this is, but um, it is quite common. And I don't think this is just true in victim advocacy, but I think it's quite common for survivors of violence to be a little suspicious of affirmations that they hear because they're not used to hearing them. Um, but I don't know that that's, you know, just the field that I'm in. I I think that's sadly, sadly common across many fields is that people aren't really used to hearing about their strengths. You know, I've done some trainings in the healthcare field and I think that may be true there as well, but I, I think it's worth remembering that sometimes with good intentions, we will keep pushing more affirmations. No, you're really strong. You're really smart. You're so good at this. And I think that um, for a person who's already feeling a little bit um, suspicious and they may be in their own way, kind of putting their hands up and saying, you know, I'm not sure I'm ready for that. It's particularly important for advocates not to violate any boundary that has been set you're working with someone who is there already because their boundaries have been violated. That is why they are meeting with you. The, the, the whole thing that happened that brought them to this meeting with you is boundaries were violated in some way. And so it is of the utmost importance that if we're getting a signal that somebody's kind of putting a little imaginary line in the sand and saying, don't cross this line pretty important that we not cross that line i speak about that not just with affirmations but also when we talk about um like asking permission to give advice things like that in any field when you teach this process of asking permission to give advice the most common question i get i don't know about either of you is well what if you ask permission and the person says no right and in any field i would say you've got to respect that but I, I really slow down and emphasize that with victim advocates because I say, listen, you're talking to a person who tried to say no to someone and it was violated. Wow. And so now when you're working with this person and they say no to you as the advocate, all the more important that we take an immediate step back and not only respect the no, but I would argue talk about that. When I have asked a survivor of violence, may I offer you a suggestion? And the person says, really, this is not a good time. I say, I want to respect right away that you're not interested. And I will not offer that. But I also want to ask you, what was it like to have your no respected this time? Mm. Because the whole reason they're there is because someone disrespected that in the past.
1: That's a very powerful Bringing together of what's happened to this individual outside of this room and what Mm -hmm. may be potentially repeated by us in this room. And in in our attempts to be kind and our attempts to be supportive, we can actually do harm by missing the very impact of us. It sounded like almost like offering a reassurance as an affirmation. And Mm. it's, they're not, they're not here for necessarily use. It's not useful to give them reassurance. It's, it's much more powerful to acknowledge. This is what it's like, and our willingness to be there with them mm-hmm. and just to notice what that's like. And again, mm-hmm. I just I'm just struck by the power of the emotional experience that advocates must be finding themselves in. And it takes me back to a conversation we had with David Prescott about his work with mm-hmm. you know perpetrators of, of sexual violence. And just the, the the willingness of an individual, another human being. Been willing to step into that furnace almost of, of emotions and do, really stand there with this person and explore where they're at and then begin to c- consider where do you want to go rather than going mm-hmm. get out of this fire, do it this way, hold my hand and I'll take you out of here. And again, it's just, just t- tipping my hat to the people who have the strength and, and determination to go alongside people in that situation. And, and acknowledge your willingness to go alongside those practitioners because I imagine that, that that dynamic is in the training room very often as well and and how do we manage that? And I, th- I think we've already started to co- cover an awful lot of this. It's about the difference, again, back to the differences that other approaches are being taught to advocates and what is it about MI that makes it so different?
2: So I've attended a lot of trainings that are designed for victim advocates and, you know, sitting as a a learner in the room, I can tell you that they are highly theoretical. (laughs) I've sat through like, well, my first job as an advocate, it was a 40 hour training to get certified as an advocate. And for 40 hours, it was theories of trauma, theories of victimization, theories of this, theories of that. And then again, just like graduate school, a lot of don'ts, don't be judging, don't be shaming, don't be blaming, don't do this, don't do that. And 40 hours is a long time to learn theories and what not to do, you know, (laughs) and I I don't know that there are a lot of other approaches, maybe some, but I don't know there are, there are a lot of other approaches that are as practical and is immediately useful as motivational interviewing. I consider motivational interviewing <clears throat> immediately useful because you do learn some tools that you could 10 minutes later practice a little bit, try out with the person sitting next to you at lunch, or call up your best friend that evening and do some reflective listening. And so I, to me, that's the biggest contrast is it's, it's not just so theoretical, it's very practical. And so I, I think it was a long time coming. I will also say, you know, victim advocacy relative to things like medicine, right? It's a new field. It's it's younger. And so there's a lot of growing up to do for the field. And it's only in the last few decades that it's even being professionalized. Um, you know, in in the 60s and 70s, advocates were just like survivors themselves who said, I'm not going to let this happen to any other person out there. And they would like drive up to someone's home in the middle of the night and knock on the door and say, I'm getting you out of here. Like that's what advocates used to be. And so the field is becoming a lot more professionalized where there are credentials and certifications, but, you know, compared to psychology, which has existed for so long, you know, it's a, it's a younger field that I do think has some, some evolving still to do you know, if I can play any tiny little role in that, I'd be happy to do it.
0: Certainly you are. And and with all that you're bringing to the, to this field of work that you do with regard to motivational interviewing, certainly it's, uh, it surely provides this, uh, pretty important contrast to some of the other training experiences that you and others have had to kind of fit with the theory and the, the don't do Mm -hmm. this and don't do that, of course, not to, Mm -hmm. not to replace it necessarily. And so and we kind of addressed this off air before we started, Kate, but you you mentioned something that's maybe somewhat unique to the world of of, uh, survivor advocacy that in regards to MI and MI of course is an approach that uh, it's all about change and all about helping people change and um, whether it's to do less of this or do more of that, enter into some other kind of program or whatever it might be. And, and that there's a, there's a, part of the work that you all do or in the, in the world of advocacy where, you know, change is, is uh, maybe viewed with a bit more suspicion and it's not quite as obvious that that's what this is all about. Maybe you could uh, talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, I think that was something that struck me when I was entering into the field of, of victim advocacy that um, I, I had learned motivational interviewing first and then got this job working as a, a an advocate in the hospital, part of a research study. And so, you know, I showed up with my prior experience in motivational interviewing and talking about change, change, change. Um, and I found when I started doing trainings for for victim and survivor advocates that, you know, when you open your workshop with something like, oh, motivational interviewing is this conversation about change. I watched whole rooms full of people cross their arms, lean back in their chairs, raise an eyebrow like who is this woman who thinks she's going to teach us something today? And I realized just as you said Sebastian there was this concern about the word change. And and I respect it now that I understand it. Now that I understand the suspicion I really respect it. But the concern is when you're an advocate, you think well, the people I work with, my clients, the survivors, the victims, they are not the ones who need to change. There is someone else out there who committed some wrong, who did some bad thing. And that person is the one who needs to change, not the person I work with. There's a lot of passion about that. And I, I hear advocates get very protective of their clients around this concept of change. And I think their worry is that it's victim blaming. I think their worry is that I was going to do a whole workshop about the ways people need to change so that they don't get victimized again. And that's not, that's not what we were talking about. It never was what we were talking about. And so what I help people or I try to help people understand is that it may be true that there's someone else out there who committed a harm or a wrong or something tragic and terrible. And it may also be true that through no fault of their own, You have clients who are now faced with a time of change and transition and healing and growth and a lot of decisions associated with that. And they are faced with many options ahead of them. And they have to figure out which options they're going to take to report or not to report, to leave or not to leave, to go to, um, a housing program or stay with a friend to implement a safety plan or wing it, you know, take your chances, go to counseling or don't go to counseling. And I, I, I'm trying to make it very clear. It's not this person's fault that they are now faced with all these decisions and changes in their lives. And yet they are faced with all of these decisions and changes in their lives. And why not help them make those changes in a way that feels really valuable to them and and so, you know, I think framing it that way has helped some people uncross their arms and relax their eyebrows and lean in a little bit to the training. And I had to learn that the hard way. I had to do it wrong a lot before I realized, OK, I think this is how I need to describe it now. Uh, but thank you for asking, because I think if we had missed that, I would have regretted not sharing a little bit about that. That motivational interviewing isn't about helping people not get victimized again as if it was their fault. That's not really the kind of target behaviors that we look at. We look at things like making a safety plan, implementing the safety plan, leaving a relationship, going to counseling, even the the decision to accept what has happened to you, to really accept that, you know, that, that this event has even taken place and that you are now experiencing trauma symptoms. A lot of folks are in a period of disbelief about that. Um, and we can help people find acceptance and growth and healing without blaming them for what has happened to them.
1: Well, So what I'm hearing is just how consistent to the spirit of MI, the, the way you're describing the making the adaptations to the theory and practice of so the words describing the theory are describing motivation. So changing the language of change, talk to self-advocacy, the recognition, the change itself can be heard as victim blaming, but also really quite significant about that idea of, of acknowledging and recognizing it's really unfair that this yeah. individual who's gone through all of this pain and hurt now has to do this healing work because of somebody else's behavior. And it's about mm-hmm. just being willing to recognize that that's part of the harm that's been done to them. This is, this yeah. isn't fair that you now have to sit in front of me as your advocate or you have to come with you to the hospital for you to have, a. uh, some, uh, operation or whatever else because of someone else's behavior or to go through mm-hmm. two or three years of potentially constant process where you have to go over and over and over and over this pain. And it, it is yeah. part of the journey. You know, it's just the sadness of, of that truth for that individual that, that the practitioner has to then sit with. And it sounds like that's what you're exploring is just going, this is cat, as they would say here in Northern Ireland. That's cat, which is, that's really rubbish. That's really unfair. That's really dreadful. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering—is any other examples of you know? I love the way that you've been so flexible in the way that you're translating and tra- in and in Vericom's traditional motivation your mm-hmm. terms into a phraseology that works for advocates.
2: I'm not sure what else. I think um I think that in any field, you know, because okay, so maybe maybe eighty percent of the workshops I do are in victim advocacy, but maybe twenty percent of them would be in a other variety of fields. And I find that in any field, professionals have a real appreciation if you try to translate it to, to, to their work, to their language. And I've just had more of an opportunity to do that for advocates. And, and again, I get no credit. I really I think that I've learned how to translate it to their work by hearing them speak to me, um, which you know, Bill Miller always says he, that he learned motivational interviewing by listening to his patients over the years. And I think I've relearned motivational interviewing by listening to advocates describe their work, I've learned motivational interviewing in a whole new way now that, you know, it it isn't always so focused on change, change, change. It may be a bit more focused on amplifying what a person's heart's desire for growth may be. And, And often I like focusing more on the word growth than change. They can sometimes be a little synonymous, but not quite. I think that for the field of victim advocacy, healing and growth seems like a, a better zone for looking for target behaviors um, than necessarily change.
0: This is such an interesting part of of this work and this conversation is as these adjustments and variations of what an MI practitioner might do without, you know, without thinking or or, or even feeling like you know the the setup of a conversation is going to build to this key question of like, what are the three best reasons for you to quit smoking or something like that. <laughs> and and I I just wondered, I, I'm wondering for myself, like, how is that kind of a question different? Mm. Either in the exact like translation of that question into another kind of similar invitation, or perhaps even just the setup of it, like how you might because you, you might not really need a disclaimer to say, you know, what are the three best reasons for you to quit smoking? It, you know, the patient's probably not survived, uh, su- not survived, not surprised uh, to have that question come in a medical consultation. Right. But, <clears throat> I don't know. In, in in the kind of work that you're talking about, could you give some yeah. specifics about how that comes up and how that sounds?
2: Yes. And um I was nodding and, and, and thinking I have some ideas, but it may not be about that kind of question. I'll have to think about that one a little bit more, Sebastian, but I'll tell you what's a bit unique, um, related to reflective listening in victim advocacy. It is very common, unfortunately, very common for survivors to blame themselves and do a lot of victim blaming on their own. Um, and I've worked with folks over the years who will say to me things like, you know, Kate. I, I suppose by this point in the podcast, your audience is probably prepared for some violent descriptions. But I, I'll, I'll pause for a moment to say, if anybody wants to like turn the volume down for a second, I will be describing some images of violence. But you know, it's common to hear things like, "Kate, I, I know that this looks bad. Um, I'm here in the hospital because my husband threw me down the stairs." Uh, kicked me in the stomach while I was pregnant. I, I know these things look bad. I know these things sound awful, but really it's my fault. I, I shouldn't have been bothering him. Uh, I knew he was in a bad mood and I asked him a question. I know I shouldn't have asked him and I take full responsibility for this. And really, you know, you get the idea, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of advocates get worried about reflective listening. When you're hearing victim, but victims blame themselves because to reflect that back sounds like I'm endorsing that. Mm. Um, and so a common thing in victim advocacy is to be really careful about not endorsing, but also not correcting, uh, in a way that feels like I'm, I'm shutting someone down. And so we practice a style of reflective listening that tries to make it very clear. I'm just saying back what you have said uh, and where I don't worry about that so much in a medical field. You know, if someone says oh, quitting smoking is so hard, I, I would feel very comfortable saying it is really hard. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I would have no concern about that, but I am concerned about saying back to someone. So you brought this on yourself. And you're telling me that you shouldn't have asked your husband a question today. That may be reflective listening technically, and it may technically be correct, but boy, does it feel very uncomfortable to say back to someone these things that I do not endorse in any way. So the style may sound more like this. I hear you telling me that from your perspective, it seems like this fill in the blanks. And I also hear that you're someone who takes a lot of responsibility. Tell me more about that. Mm. And, you know, we we might just kind of observe the overall theme of it is you're taking a lot of responsibility here rather than correcting and saying, no, no, this is not your fault. You didn't do anything wrong. That could really shut a person down who wants a safe place to express how they feel. Um, But just repeating it back also feels a little dirty and uncomfortable for the advocate who's like i don't want to say those words back to Mm. someone so we do practice the style of reflecting without endorsing i mean technically no reflection is really an endorsement but some could sound that way
1: if we're not careful with our tone of voice that's fantastic that is so good and immediately i want to suggest that what if we just sit with that for a few minutes and just invite you to you know help us as as as, as the host and, and the listeners, just to think about, you know, that adaptation again about how you're translating motives or in this instance, reflective listening into a manner and into a conversational style that works for this client group. And I wonder, can you, can you give us a couple more examples of how you take a situation and how you've translated it or how you encourage advocates to consider it differently to then reflect it back or to affirm or?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've talked about affirmations and we've talked about reflections. Maybe I'll try to go back to Sebastian's question about questions. (laughs) Um, I love a question about questions. I mentioned earlier that it's really common for someone to immediately present what I like to call a hopeful outcome. I just want to be safe. I just want to be happy. I just want to be independent. I just want to be free. When we're listening to people and then facilitating a conversation with open-ended questions, I, I will commonly tie it back to their hopeful outcome. Um, so something like this, I hear you describing how you're back and forth and a bit torn about whether you are interested in, in making the safety plan with me. You see some benefits of the safety plan. And you also wonder if maybe it's just a silly waste of time to, you know, map out you know, how you'll stay safe in your life. If you were to to sit with me and, and work on the safety plan, how does that feed your hopeful outcome of safety and independence and freedom and happiness and all the things that you told me that you might want? And so I try to help people draw that line that I described earlier from decisions to behaviors to outcomes. And a lot of the questions I will ask kind of go back to that big picture. What are you aiming for ultimately? And how does this help you take some steps toward that? Is it also an interesting conversation about, about power that comes up there because very often the hopeful outcome, I call it hopeful because it isn't something that a person has control over necessarily. You can hope for safety in your life and never have it. You can hope for happiness and never really feel happy. You can hope for freedom and independence and success and love and all sorts of things that you don't really achieve. Um, and so I call them hopeful outcomes, not to make any promises to people that if you just do this, you know, you will, you will have all of your hopes and dreams fulfilled that it is, you know, we can control and we have power over our behaviors and those behaviors might hopefully lead to that outcome that you're describing. And so I, I try to focus on what can we do that you do have power and control over that might lead to that thing you told me you ultimately want, that hopeful outcome. Um, and so some of my questions would would sort of be revolving around that.
0: So it's it, it you were listening really carefully for some expression of of a hopeful outcome. And then tying that you know that patient-centered the, that that sort of hope that comes from within them and link that to some of the sort of nuts and bolts of the work of victim advocacy, like developing a safety plan and yeah. it, which, which I imagine yeah. helps it to kind of match with the, with the client's agenda, maybe big picture agenda of, you know, I want to be happy someday, but it, it it's, I, I guess I hear it also as a, an example of partnership and it, it, this isn't like another specialist coming in and saying, you're this victim, you have to develop the safety plan it, obviously the the safety plan development is i imagine a collaborative process but the fact that it it rests on this hopeful outcome that the client expressed for themselves it establishes or maintains or or maybe establishes the idea that you know you're you're in charge here even mm-hmm. if it even if you're not saying that even if it's in the context of the situation where the client likely feels that they have no power or the power's been taken away from them it begins to like kind of slowly Piece that together without, without that potential kind of artificial sounding. You know, you're a powerful person. You know, it, it just might not fit in in such a direct way. I'm also I was thinking about the reflection piece that you were describing there, which is just so a wonderful example, and it was so interesting because I, I feel like a lot of us who teach MI when we teach reflections, you know we're all probably familiar with people that aren't quite comfortable with reflections. They're just learning for the first time and they often use what we call a reflection stem, right? They'll say something like, it sounds like, or they'll have those go-to words before the actual reflection of, of the content of what the client said. And, it, it's this, and, and we encourage, you know, gently, obviously, but encourage people to consider, what if you just dropped the, it sounds like, and just went with the reflection? As a way to help them learn reflection. In this case, it sounds like it's almost the opposite. Like you want, you're, you're actually trying to develop the right kinds of stems. So you're taking great care to not endorse. And, and I've never quite thought of it in that way that those stems have, I mean, I, you know, this, the stems can be helpful as someone's learning, am I? But I, I've never quite thought of it as a stem as helpful for the other person. in in really emphasizing, this is what I'm hearing you tell me, this is what I'm hearing you believe in yourself right now, or, you know, whatever it might be, but I'm kind of rambling right now, but, but you get the point.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm smiling because, you know, we eventually get there, but when I first teach reflections, uh, I guess I don't even realize I'm doing it, but um i give a lot of examples of reflections that don't include that stem and it's a common remark i hear from participants in a workshop is kate you're you're so direct like it it, it feels almost harsh like you're just saying like you're mad right now and i say perhaps i say we you know we may all have our own style and mine may be very direct i do live in philadelphia you know like, I am who I am. And people will ask, you know, do you ever soften it up a little bit? And and I say, yes, I soften it up a little bit when I'm nervous about my reflection, when I'm unsure of it and I'm worried that it might sound like an endorsement. That's when I very intentionally add back in Sebastian, what you're calling stems and what I call softeners, something that kind of like eases into the reflection and I say I will very intentionally go back and use something like that if I'm worried that my reflection might sound like I'm agreeing with someone and it's something that I really don't want to agree with like adamantly do not want to agree with. Um, and so there's a time when I decide I think I need to go back to that style of reflecting where I might really emphasize particular words like, you feel this way. It feels that way to you. You're seeing it like this. And I just kind of let that word you like land heavy, uh, so that it's very clear. I am as your advocate, not the one to, you know, observing these things, you're saying them.
1: And what's very powerful again is what you're saying is by paying attention to yourself, Mm -hmm. it's informing what you say next. When, when, when your, uh, spidey sense is flickering, you're going, "Mm, maybe I need to introduce a stem or softener. Mm -hmm. And when it's not, then I can just, I can just be authentic and just say what I'm saying and just see what happens. And, but again, just how powerful that paying attention to ourselves as we help other people. And I love what, what you were saying there, Seb, about the the whole, the whole thing about autonomy in this Mm -hmm. process. And it sounds like it's the autonomy that, that's created. That itself is healing for this individual. This is somebody who's had their autonomy removed on so many occasions, verbally, physically, often sex- sexually as well. And then this process is going, what do you want? What is it you need? How can I honor your right to decide what you do next? I may not always agree with what you're going to do next, but I'm going to honor your right to make that decision for yourself. And I, and I guess it's so much of, of what our audience or listen to will be very helpful for me. I, I can, I'm, I'm in my own mind. I'm just thinking about the different people I come into contact with in my private practice, but also in my trainings, and just noticing how I might make adaptations to, just how I might phrase some things as I'm teaching and phrase some things as I'm as I'm working with individuals. But we're we're coming up to about an hour now, and I'm, and usually at this point, Kate, we ask our guests a, a slightly left of center question, which is, you know, what else is maybe happening for you at the minute that maybe motivates the interview and related, it may not, but just something that's catching your attention that you'd be happy to talk to as well for a few minutes.
2: Yeah. Thank you for asking. So in addition to my, my work with the advocacy Academy, I also have something I keep sort of separate from that, but it's, it's my work, but I, I think of my work in two different ways the Advocacy Academy is really focused on training for victim and survivor advocates. But over here on the other side, I have um, a, a podcast myself, and, and it became a book this year, and it's called "Only Trying to Help." And I like to think of it as sort of the, the very jargon-free version of motivational interviewing. Like you, you—if you read the book or listen to the podcast, what we're talking about is empathy, autonomy, listening. Um, you know monitoring your writing reflex, all the things that we talk about in motivational interviewing. But I don't really call it any of that because I think uh, to read a book with all of that terminology, <clears throat> I think requires a little bit of sometimes training and sometimes prior knowledge, like some 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 workshop you've been through that told you to pick up this book. So only trying to help is like, if you've ever gone to a motivational interviewing workshop and thought, gosh, I wish my husband could attend this, Or I wish my best friend could hear this stuff, or I wish my mom had this training. Only trying to help is meant to be that training, minus all of the acronyms, minus all of the jargon, minus all of the like academic theory. It's just like for regular people who are not psychologists and social workers and physicians and nurses and advocates, but you're just like the bartender who hears about a lot of people's problems. Uh, these are just basic helping skills. So, The podcast is called Only Trying to Help. It's available on Spotify, Audible, Apple Podcast. Um, It's not a competitor for this podcast because people come here for motivational interviewing. They'll send their cousins and best friends to my podcast. (laughs) And then the book is by the same name and and it came out just this past May. So I'm really excited about it.
0: Well, that's great news. And uh, yeah, it's really exciting to hear And some of a lot of people in the MI community certainly speak to the like how how broadly can we apply this? You know, can you do MI with your kids like that kind of stuff? And and, you know, while there's there are likely some some limitations to to formal MI with with one's adolescents children, like I've tried at my home. It sounds like it's such a useful resource to, like, take some concept, remove the jargon and just kind of have, have a real, sort of real conversation about like, yeah, how do I talk to my kids in a, in a helpful way? How do I communicate with my spouse or a friend who's struggling? So, um, sounds like a really, really awesome resource.
2: Thanks. I'm pretty proud of it. Plus it's mostly filled with stories about times I did it all wrong and people like to read about that stuff. So. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Right. And, and the the book, what's the publisher?
2: I self-published the book
0: self-published. Okay, great. So we'll, we'll, we'll offer uh, a link or some information about that in the episode notes if people want to hear about that.
2: Great. Thanks so much. Um,
0: And so, uh, yeah. And as we wrap up, we also ask our guests if they are interested in people contacting them with questions about some of the uh, work that you're doing, or maybe the podcast and the book, uh, would you be open to that and how could they contact you?
2: Sure. So I'm happy to hear from folks. My email address is Kate, K-A-T-E, at advocacyacademy.org. I'm not super active on Instagram and things like that, but if folks, you know, were to connect with me there, it's, uh, I'm Kate W Kate W. I find that the more people who follow me there, the more inspired I am to actually do stuff on Instagram. So you you would be helping me a little bit. (laughs) Uh, but I'd be happy to hear from folks, questions, comments, anything that might be helpful. So feel free to reach out.
1: Yeah, I love the fact that your name just fits perfectly with what you do. You advocate, <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. And mm-hmm. and then just to, to extend that for people who want to stay in touch with us, our Twitter is change talking. Seb's personal Twitter account to follow Seb is sgk from nc. So Seb, S-G-K from NC, all one word. And my own is at Glenn Hines with two N's, G-L-E-N-N-H-I-N-D-S. And Instagram is Talking to Change Podcast. Facebook is Talking to Change. And our email for any comments on the podcast or ideas or information around training that we offer, it's podcast at glennhines.com.
0: Well, thanks so much for joining us, Kate. We really appreciate it. This was uh, super interesting. So thanks for glad having to me. have you. Thank you, Kate. Yeah. Thank
1: you. Thanks,
0: everybody.